0: A lot of great points, and I'll probably roll a couple of them into one. I've had the benefit of being trained both as a surgeon and as a GP, and the training and the disciplines between the two are very, very different. So I agree with Peter, professional training, there is there is something completely different. You know, what makes a good GP really is good communication about what I was coming to about ideas, concerns, and expectations. Many of the hospital disciplines still focus on the academic excellence and the delivering evidence-based care, even if you've just taken the insulin off the patient that was doing pretty well managing their care before they came into hospital. completely agree with Neil's point on data, and at Nuffield we transparently but internally publish all our data because it drives performance between the hospitals. If you publish the patient satisfaction, the complaints, the clinical variances, you can see the general managers poring over the charts on the walls either to make sure that they're moving up the places or to maintain their top five status or to sure as hell get out of the the bottom three. And so I really think there's a big opportunity for the government and this round of policy initiatives to publish comparative data on almost everything that we've got that moves in healthcare so that organisations such as yours and others can take that data and can put it in the consumer domain so that people can choose the best health services, whether they're in the NHS or the private sector. It's, It's the comparison. And then just to go back to the point on social class five and the the weight gain, I think as a doctor I can see there's a really big gap around nutrition information. I've almost no idea what I eat today and how that translates into calories. I think there's a real gap for uh, food calculators and the like to translate and give you that kind of nutritional breakdown to give you a sporting chance of working out whether you're eating too much compared to the amount of activity you've done in the day.
1: Can I just follow on from that also and say one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and and, uh, contributed in this Public Health Commission is that when you're in a supermarket, yes, there's demands for labelling on everything, there's a big fight between is it traffic labelling, is it you know, traffic lights or is this or is it that. And then you can go out for a meal in a restaurant or get a takeaway and you have no idea what calories you're eating at all. I think they call it the private eye diet where you spend all day having just one boiled egg and a bit of lettuce and, and that's your big diet for the day. And then you go and get this fantastic Indian takeaway and a six-pack. And unfortunately, there's no, there's nothing on that label or anything to say that, of course, that could be three days' worth of calories in one fell swoop and then straight to bed. But in all seriousness, I think there is an issue here in terms of social patterning and one that's important in terms of reach. You know, How do we reach all different communities to encourage them to change their behaviour and improve the, the health of the nation? And I know that DH did some research, I know, a couple of years ago, which was showing, unfortunately, that the more you get people who are overweight in a the community, they start they see people looking like them, so then they feel comfortable in that weight. And that's a real problem, whereas... I have to say, I'm always conscious of my weight because I have friends who are wonderfully slim, and I'm comparing. It's it's human nature. Women particularly do that. I'm sure men do too. Um, So a lot of this is about social interaction and how we behave among our different social groups, and we have to tackle that. Uh, What are the limits, the Mars bar? Unless we actually tackle the food companies and get them to understand that you've got to change what you're producing in terms of of your food. Of course, you're never going to kill the Mars bar, but I understand that they are now producing a smaller bar. Okay, that's not the answer, but it's all contributory. All that we're talking about today is contributory, and actually also in terms of social patterning. The lady from White City, you're demonstrating, this gentleman too, you're demonstrating in action what you can do in terms of nudging different communities, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm so sorry, but none of us sitting here can influence the policy which is I'm so sorry to hear what you're saying to me and I mean I I will say what I can elsewhere but I'm not in charge of that sadly the question of DH clinicians if you remember the end of my talk I said I think we've got to get tougher and I think we've got to free up clinicians to say what needs to be said I mean my husband was really ill about uh, 18 months ago and I was just really sorry that the clinicians didn't get tougher with him. You know, I wish they'd said, you know, sorry, you've got to lose weight, you've got to get fitter, you've got to think about burning candle at both ends, et cetera, et cetera. And there's too much blame game still. It's too much reliance that the NHS is going to sort you. It's their fault. It's the government's fault if you're overweight, if you're drinking too much. We've got to, we've got to shift that culture. And I think just judging by what everyone's saying today, there's great will to do that.
2: Let me come to David. I mean, two, two things particularly I wanted you to respond to among the many interesting points that have been raised. The One is around the social class question that was raised. And then secondly, Victor's point about are there limits? Well, clearly there are. So what are the limits to nudge? And you said, didn't you, in your presentation, nudging is one of a <coughs> number of different interventions around the public health agenda.
3: Yeah. Now, on some of those points, a lot of the comments were very much about this disruptive you know, technology and what. Um, actually in the approaches and, and, and your point about what's actually happening on the ground. I mean, one of the challenges in the white paper has got to be, I mean, including on health inequalities, is just, if, you know, essentially you are you're ceding a lot of agency going forward to local commissioners and you're taking a bit of a leap of faith that hopefully the money's going to be spent in the right way. I mean, for the positive side of this conversation on some of today is that actually it's quite a lot of optimism, I think, when you look at it on the back of an envelope, is we can have very big health impacts by utilising resources in somewhat different ways often, and indeed harnessing these, what sometimes called hidden wealth of nations, these capacities. That by itself of course, doesn't mean that will happen, which feeds into some of these points about transparency of data and feedback, about efficacy, and indeed, in fact, building the research in general about what works and what doesn't, including across the social uh, distribution. On the inequalities point, I mean, there are some very deep issues here, aren't there? We know that and the argument's been running for a number of years. We often see the markers, which are often behavioral, but not only behavioral, which seem to mediate and help explain, but not entirely explain, some of the social class differences. And um, disentangling is pretty difficult. So you alluded about your personal experience. But of course, the mm-hmm. framing of study has very much reinforced that around social network effects, yeah. which then, but they have a kind of social gradient built on them. Yeah. I think we just don't know fully about what will work best on some of the social gradients. One of the arguments in favor of some types of nudge approaches is because, unlike classic educational or informational approaches, they seem to work in a more automatic way, and you can make a case that they will work more evenly across the social distribution. In some cases, you can find examples, actually, like Lowenstein's example on some of the labeling effects, which disproportionately seem to work better on some of the most at-risk populations. But then there, of course, there are countervailing arguments, particularly on the informational campaigns, like on smoking, where it looks like it's the reverse. So it's going to be an empirical question which runs and runs. And Mike Marmot has pointed out there are other kinds of things, like access to green space, which seems very powerful in terms of their distributional effects and benefit more generally. I'm a bit more skeptical, I think, than you about sometimes there are conflicts of interest between some providers. But I think what you do is, you know, you pursue the opportunities where they exist for partnership, right? And sometimes you have to be open about the fact there may be underlying commercial tension, right? And where you reach the limits of that, then fine, let's have an open and hard conversation. I mean, similarly, I just want to touch on briefly, some of the arguments have been made historically about change for life and so on, is that I think one of the things you have to do, and the PM uh, and Lansley and others seem to be very up for it, is that if you're going to do that sort of campaign, there also has to be a kind of toughness to it. And an open. Oh, yeah. So it's of it well, it's also getting the changing ingredients to,
1: that they use. Also, you know, it's quite, there's a lot of pressure you can put on in it's right, 2 ways. We all
3: have to be um, <laughs> attentive to the risk that what happens is you can spray on a brand, actually, and say this is a slightly healthier product, but actually you haven't fundamentally changed Mm. what's going on you know it has to be an absolutely honest approach and sometimes that will mean actually that isn't okay and we don't all sign up to it and Mm. keep being disingenuous you know but let's try anyway i did want
2: to though come back to one of the issues raised right at the beginning around cross-government cross-departmental actions here because David you in particular in the cabinet office can see this better than anybody else in the room and are you hopeful given where you sit that we can address some of the concerns that were raised in the presentations and we can move forward in a more productive
3: way it's a great question I know we didn't pick up this sort of silo issue um, I, <laughs> I have a mixed view about it I mean you may know I actually spent a long time in government and then I left to do something called the Institute for Government for a few years partly based on the the obvious defects of government in the UK. Every government, when you go to other countries, also has silo issues. But, boy, we've got it bad in the UK. There's a good case to say it's especially bad in the UK. Just take practical examples. I mean, even when you get complete no-brainers, like the non-emergency phone number, right, how we actually failed to implement it effectively in the UK. So we've got to acknowledge that there is something about our institutional characteristics which are incredibly deeply ingrained in terms of a silo dynamic. Now, the pessimist will say... I'm acknowledging that this is an appropriate concern, is that particularly in the context of a fiscal sort of tightening, what will happen is it'll make it even worse. right? So what will happen at the local level is everybody will protect their core internal provision in a very mm. classic way. And anything which is interesting, like what you've been talking about, um, or indeed the example around the, you know, the garden and so on, we had um, reworking yeah. public spaces. It's exactly that stuff that will get squeezed out. Yeah. That has that's got to be the deep concern that we've got. Now, on the other hand, of course, there's a public services white paper coming out um, next month, and it will be very much pushing, sort of opening up. And if you get payment by results, for example, and you do it across services, mm-hmm. it becomes possible for Victor and other innovative providers to, say, to reassemble those, those resources in interesting new ways. And if you've got an administration that really wants to push hard on pushing resources out, Lots of po- positive possibilities arise. So you, you have a juxtaposition, seems to be very much hanging in the balance, if we're honest, between those two great forces. Deep institutional characteristics yeah. towards silos, which are generally negative, and then the possibility of some quite big disruptions, which of course people will also shout about, but which create new opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, which way it will swing? Well, it's going <laughs> to hinge probably on people like you in this room as to whether we can push it one way or the other to get the benefit. Yeah, at a local level that's
2: played out too, isn't it, around the potential for the new health and well-being boards, local authorities having a much bigger role in public health too, which might help to overcome some of the silos that exist out there as well as those that exist in And we White can Hall. count
3: on you, Chris, you're going to keep pushing this. Uh, we are indeed. <laughs> that's critical. Yeah.
2: Critical. Uh, So I apologize that we've run out of time, and obviously there were lots more questions and contributions that colleagues wanted to make, and I think that's a tribute to the discussion stimulated by our three speakers and panelists this morning. So please show your appreciation as we draw to a close.